0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
2: This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. I'm out in the heart of Eaglesham Moor. It is a vast, high plateau about 10 miles south of Glasgow. This is a landscape that's seen many changes, but probably the most dramatic of those is the addition of what you can possibly hear in the background. The throbbing whirr of a wind turbine, for I am in the heart of the largest onshore wind farm in the UK. This is Whiteley Wind Farm. And for this week's Open Country, I want to explore this landscape, which has been worked by man for generations. I've come out with the ranger Rennie Mason. And, Rennie, you've brought me to what you describe as the very heartland of Eagle Shamur, and we're trekking through this place that you've described as the Weaver's Trail.
0: That's right, yes. Yes. The Weaver's Trail is a, it's an ancient trading route that runs right across the Whiteley Plateau from Eaglesham to Darvel, and it's roughly 16 miles where they would climb up from the Irvine Valley over the plateau and then down to Eaglesham. and basically it's an old trading route so in one direction you had lace products coming from the mills and the weavers and the hand bloomers in Darvel and New Milnes going through Eaglesham and on into Glasgow. And then in the opposite direction, you would have, you know, the yarn and probably foodstuffs like butter and cheese and things like that. So this route really runs right through the heart of the wind farm.
2: But right over the top of this plateau, it is high, it it is bitterly cold, it is peatland, bogs everywhere.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the plateau here sits at over 300 metres and it is a really fierce environment. A, a really nice story that um, you, you can read of is, is that people used to meet some of the outlying farms in Eaglesome and they were described as staging areas where people would get together, have something to eat and drink before tackling coming across the moors. And I think that really says it all about how much of a challenge it really was. I think you had to be a pretty hardy person back then because I mean we, I'm standing here with about five layers on and I can still feel the cold
2: <laughs> when was the weavers trail in use then
0: well there's records of weavers in the around about kind of 1790 but there was hand weaving continued on till about the early 19th century so There was a story of somebody, and I think it was about the 1940s, they crossed the moor to get on a bus to go to a football match at Hamden. But if you imagine, you know, going off to a football match by crossing (laughs) us, the moors must have been quite an undertaking.
2: I hope Celtic won. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you've worked here for quite a few years. You understand very much how this landscape has changed
0: There's a long history of the use of the moors by humans. We've got Iron Age sites, we've got Bronze Age artifacts have been uncovered. And then of course you've got White Leaf Forest coming into getting a more modern history.
2: A m- massive commercial plantations. Absolutely,
0: yeah. one of the largest, I think, that Forestry Commission have. And they started planting that around about 1961. You know, there's an no oral history of the site, and what people talk about is a green blanket descending over the moors. And this was the forest been planted. And really that work is ongoing and it, it's just that real mixture of things going on in this site as we're saying you know we've got agriculture we've got wind farming we've got forestry we've got public access we've got private landowners councils and wind farm operators it's a really interesting and unusual place to come
2: how many turbines are there at the moment?
0: There's 215 turbines spread out through the whole wind farm which covers an area of roughly 30.4 square miles which means the site's actually about half the size of the whole of Glasgow.
2: But there are other trails and pathways and access points all across this landscape. That is another big change in the place isn't it?
0: Prior to the wind farm, the only people really coming up here were your foresters and your farmers and a a real kind of hardy bunch of bird enthusiasts and plant hunters. The wonderful thing about this site is we have over 130 kilometres of wind farm tracks, forest trails, old rights of way and certainly the work that we as a ranger service are involved in is making the little connections and paths that open up the area even more.
2: Shall we walk up the trail a bit, Rennie? Sure. Sure. Come to a different part of the wind farm. Where are we now?
0: We're at a spot called Blackwood Hill, which is more towards the kind of northern end of the the wind farm, towards the visitor centre.
2: We're standing very close to the base. You can see the number on it, number 43. And it just overpowers us. Just one single turbine. And beyond that, everywhere you look, there are turbines rotating in this stiff breeze. And then because the sun has come out, we get a flick of the blade shadow across the ground. So it's trying to cut our legs. <laughs> Look at the view you get as we've climbed up the trail a little bit.
0: You start to notice little vistas through to Loch Lomond, Ben Lomond, Aaron. Now right, you can start to see Glasgow just appearing off to the, the east of us. But what's really interesting, what's really nice from this point, is when you're looking north and through the gaps, you're starting to see the kind of Highlands.
2: You're looking to the land beyond the turbines, but when people come here, they may look and all they see are the wind turbines, and that for some distracts from their experience of wild landscape. They're
0: certainly uh, part of the landscape here now, I would certainly say, but um, for myself, I find these machines up here very graceful, the way they just sit on there and One of the amazing things about this site is the sky, it's the changes in the colours and it really gives this place real character even without the turbines here but when you've got them dotted through this as well it's quite a fantastic landscape it really is.
2: We've been hearing about how more and more people are using the lands underneath the turbines for leisure activities and I've come back down, uh, heading down towards the visitor centre again, and I bumped into you are? Victoria. Hello Victoria, and you've got you're, you've got a double buggy here, but there's just one of I your children I've uh, just got Jake here with me today and how old's Jake? He's eight months Your first experience of being up here? Yes, yes it's really nice, it is a bit cold, but it's fine Well, what brought you today? Why did you want um, to come? Well, after having Jake, I tried to get back into fitness, and I wanted to go and with like, some groups. So mum's come out with the buggies, and mm-hmm. then you, you go around parts of the site? Yes and, I mean, how do you feel about wind farms? I think they're fine. I don't think they're eyesores or anything like that. I think it's a good place to come. And do you think they'll come back? Yes, yeah, yes, definitely. I, um, I think it runs weekly.
3: It's been a leisurely good walk, but obviously it's a long walk, so just kind of gradually get back in there. <laughs> <laughs> good luck. <laughs> OK, thank you.
1: My name's Nevin, Nevin Porter. And you have a wee group of children up here from your nursery group. It's yep. Oakwood Nursery from down Burn in Burnside's. We actually do a lot of outdoor education with our children and today we were at a wood. We decided to leave a little bit early and come up and have a look at the wind farm.
2: And what's the sort of... I mean, they're very young and everything. They just accept that the wind farms are there. But how do you feel about it as an adult coming here?
1: I actually learned a lot today. The fact that this was a managed land before. It used to bother me a little because I thought they've maybe destroyed it, but it was managed for grouse. it was managed for commercial farming, and it was managed as moorland. It's, that's not what it's been naturally for a very long time. So I don't mind it myself, and I actually think they look quite good. I
2: mean, there have been people who have felt it was imposed upon them, and some of them have, have moved away.
1: Others obviously just have to live with it. Oh, I completely understand, and I understand why people wouldn't like it. I know many people who look at the wind farm and think it's ugly. I know many people that look at it and think that it's destroyed habitat. I know that lots of the forest was cleared for the wind farm, but I do know that this has given a more diverse environment. So it swings and roundabouts. I feel sorry for anybody that doesn't like it that was here first. Did they have a good day? Boys and girls, have you had fun today at the woods and the wind farm?
4: Can't hear you!
2: It has taken about 15 minutes of traveling to get from the center to the westerly edge of the wind farm and this is where pete robson who is a senior ecologist with scottish power renewables he and his team are working on a project to restore the landscape and it's part pete part of your commitment it's part of the habitat management plan which you're obliged to do across this landscape because of the wind farm
5: Yes, that's right.
2: So we've come to this area, peatland, bogland, blanket bog, I've heard these terms used. So just tell me about this habitat and how it's formed.
5: What we're actually standing on is undecomposed plant remains. And that builds up because essentially rainwater falls on this land faster than it evaporates. So you get this kind of waterlogged habitat starting to form. And what it does is, because it's just rainwater, it's slightly acidic and it has very few nutrients in it. And the waterlogging becomes very low in oxygen and it stops the decomposition process. So the plant material just builds up and builds up and builds up and forms this wonderful sort of peat layer, which in some parts of the site can be up to nine or ten metres deep.
2: Now, this landscape has been damaged. And I'd be wrong to make the assumption that it was the wind farm that has caused the initial damage. So...
5: A lot of the blanket bog in the UK, up to 80% is thought to be in a kind of damaged state. It's been neglected over the years, it's been actively worked, it's been farmed, it's been drained, it's been burned sometimes. In the case of where we're standing here, it's been damaged by afforestation.
2: But surely the construction of the wind farms, in terms of the, you know, the vehicles that they used across the landscape to do all the building and the, and the weight of the turbines that they brought in, surely that must have caused a lot of damage
5: what we do when we're developing a site is that we, we go out and assess where the peat is on the site and how deep it is. It's impossible in a, a place like Upland, Scotland, to avoid all the peat because peat tends to exist on hills, which is where you also want to build the turbine. So we have to try and find a way of minimising the impact, and we do that by... The design principles of finding out where the peat is and avoiding it and where we have to cross areas of deeper peat, we use things like floating roads so that the the road is actually not cut down to the underlying substrate, it actually sits on a mat.
2: One of the complaints that people might have about wind farms is that they might say, why are you putting up a wind turbine to reduce carbon emissions when you're putting it on a place which is the best ever carbon sink in the entire planet?
5: It's a net balance of that. The government have a tool called the carbon calculator. The kind of decarbonisation of the grade, the contribution to that, which is made by the wind turbines, is used to calculate the carbon savings versus the loss of some peat in the soils as part of the construction process. You know, a good site, the carbon payback period will be less than two years.
2: And and you brought us out across this particular stretch of land and we're going to be walking off towards, there's a digger at work there because that's part of a process that you have been working on, an innovative way of restoring the bog habitat.
5: Yes, we've been trying to develop techniques for restoring bog from these forested habitats. This is our kind of laboratory of trials to try and figure out a better way of doing it.
2: So, Jock, your digger driver, um, is going to do some stem flipping. Stump flipping. stump flipping, so we can yes. see what that actually looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think he gave you the thumbs up there.
5: Yep,
2: yeah. here we go. Oh, look at that! The great spread, the ripple of movement through the bog as he starts to work. The digger gouges down into the ground. <laughs> it's like looking at working on a jelly, it isn't is. it? That sort of movement.
5: Yes, it he is. He takes
2: up these great scoops.
5: We flip the stump over, so we effectively pull it out of the ground and turn it on its head, and then we press it into the peat underneath.
2: Start that slow decomposition process that makes peat. It
5: will once it becomes waterlogged at the surface.
2: And that's the key, is it? And
5: that's the key. So we, we call it active bog when the bog is waterlogged and is laying down new peat.
2: In a way, flattening it so that the water table will rise... Is it as simple as that?
5: It, almost, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're really doing is you're flattening out the ground and you're pushing parts of it that are elevated down so that the, the distance that a plant has to go to sort of reach the water table is much much closer to the surface.
2: How do you know it's working though?
5: Well, we have various monitoring programmes. So the areas that we've just treated now, you can see there's a lot of sort of bare-exposed peat and brash material on the surface.
2: It, it looks a bit like a battleground, doesn't yes, it? The roughness of it all and it the how the things have been torn up and turned.
5: <laughs> you can't really be too delicate with it. It needs a good shove to get it in the right direction. But eventually within a year or two you'll start to see particularly cotton grasses coming back they're very fast colonizers the sphagnums and the heathers will will start to come after a few years as well as quickly as that As quickly within two or three years it'll be unrecognizable you know each stump might take only 10 or 20 seconds to flip but there are hundreds of thousands if not millions of stumps that we have to get through so it's a painstaking process
2: he's very good at it though isn't he Look at that, and look how the cab is rocking.
5: Sometimes you can go home feeling a bit seasick if you've been here standing too close all day.
2: I can feel I can feel the movement now under yeah. my feet.
5: He's a, it's effective at standing on a lake. I mean, Pete's 98% water, and the peat below your feet here is about 4 to 5 metres depth.
2: That makes it very special, but it is such a precious habitat. What
5: we're doing is we're trying to restore just the surface layer of this bog If all the peat underneath here was to be taken away, you can't really put that back. That takes thousands and thousands of years to accumulate, so we can only really influence that very top layer. We can't really do anything about the bit underneath.
2: But this helps preserve the bit underneath? Absolutely,
5: yes. Because it's one
2: of the greatest records of our planet's environmental history, isn't it? What lies beneath our feet? The accumulation of organic matter over thousands and thousands of years. Come down to the southwest corner of Whiteley Wind Farm, and this is where the operations centre is. So there are two single story buildings here along the side of a reservoir, and again, ever present the movement from the turbines. And Mark Gailey, you're the manager of the operations centre here, and the company Scottish Renewables, that's the energy company, and you're owned by the large Spanish renewables development company. Ivadrola. That's correct. Right. So shall we head inside and I can see what all this turbine activity is about? Of course. Let's go. And we're surrounded by uh, computer screens with all sorts of graphics and maps and charts and things happening on them.
4: So just in Whiteley, there are 215 turbines. The turbines are completely autonomous. They will continue to track the wind, they will turn into the wind, and they will do what they need to do to make sure that they get the maximum generation from the wind at all times. But today is a cold day, but it's good wind conditions. So very calm, very dry, but thankfully we're getting very good uh, wind generation.
2: If today is what you call a good day, what happens when there are great storms across Whiteley, the plateau?
4: The the turbines will not perform any differently during a storm. They will continue to track the wind and react to what those gusts are. When you see wind turbines going off during high winds, it's usually because the gusts are very high, those 70, 80 mile an hour gusts. But the turbines will cope with that. Uh, and they will pitch out of the wind until those gusts have reduced and then they will start back up again all by themselves uh, and they will make sure, and they have the complete control here to stop, start and reset any turbines from this facility.
2: You always have to keep an eye on the forecast and then plan accordingly.
4: We do and we have very sophisticated wind forecasting systems uh, and it allows us to look up to 14 days out as to what potentially the export of the site is going to be and we can plan our work around those wind limits.
2: Well, what I'll do is I'll leave you here because I want to go back out on site to look at the impact upon the landscape of the construction of these turbines on the Whiteley Plateau. OK, thank you. I've come outside the operation room and I'm with Kenny Peberdy. So, My role is yeah.
6: Operations Director for Scottish Power Renewables. I've been involved with Whiteley for approximately 12 years through the development, the construction and into the operation
2: what can it influence the decision to put the wind farm up on the plateau then
6: what we're looking for is a business we're looking for high altitude plateaus the site is surrounded by low lying land which allows us to achieve free flow wind conditions and with no interruptions from the surrounding topography
2: but there would be those who would say that that setting the turbines across such a, a landscape it, it destroys its unique wilderness feel
6: that's a view and we respect the views of the members of the public. When we're talking wind farms and the visual intrusion that some people perceive them to be, that's a very subjective view. What we would point out is that we have many hundreds of thousands of people who have expressed positive views on the wind farm, uh, and that's by seeing by how popular a visitor centre is uh, over significantly over the last five or six years.
2: There are still ongoing concerns about the impact of the wind farm of construction and so forth on the local water resources, the local water supply being contaminated.
6: Throughout the pre-construction period, we undertake extensive water testing and these results are all recorded and made available to local authorities. Throughout the construction phase, we also take a significant number of water samples for testing and in all instances, no pollution has ever been recorded resulting from the wind farm in the last 10 years.
2: One of the major complaints about wind farms is there's such, they would say, a proliferation of them that they feel some landscapes are, to use their words, saturated by wind farms.
6: Whether we're at saturation point yet, I couldn't say. What I would say is that, as a a country, we're committed to green, renewable energy. There will be limitations on where wind farms can be built, A lot of what we would call the good sites have now been developed. There will be other sites that can be developed, provided they're developed and designed sensitively.
2: They say that a turbine has a lifespan of about 25 years. So what's going to happen in the long term here?
6: Uh, It's a very good question and it's part of a national debate that's now starting. We have a consent for 25 operational years up here in the Moor. What we need to do as an industry, we need to think... What happens at the end of that 25 years? That could be a life extension, where the turbines operate as they currently do. We could think about replanting, which is the turbines are enhanced with more efficient components. Or we could talk about repowering, where we build new turbines. But in any instance, what we have to do is consult again with with the government, the local communities, with all the various stakeholders, and have a plan for Whiteley as we move forward.
2: Eaglesham Moor is not just about the wind farm. People have lived and worked on the land in in many ways, obviously farming and forestry. So I've come up to Loch Goyne Farm to meet Willie Barr. Your family, oh gosh, Willie, you've farmed here many as a generation. It's a wild place to make a living.
3: Yes, it's not the easiest place in the world. We have in total about 500 head of flock. We try and keep them to the best of ground. It gives the sheep a, a little bit more shelter. Do you ever uh, see
2: them seeking shelter around the back of a turbine?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, we've, well, there's one area we've got where the turbine base is basically where we'll feed the sheep. It makes it a lot easier for us because it's a hard bit of ground. They learn very quickly where they get fed, so if you can get them there when you think it's going to snow, then hopefully tomorrow morning you'll know that they're all going to be there and you won't have missed any.
2: It's a very challenging landscape to farm, though, surely.
3: Yes, yes. It's actually a lot easier now with the wind farm because the infrastructure of the roads make it easier for us to get round about the annals. You can do the work in half the time.
2: How did you get round before then?
3: Just walked.
2: But it's miles and miles.
3: That's just the way it was. That's what all the farmers did. You're
2: running a farm, so you really never had much of a choice about leaving because of the wind farm?
3: For me, it's all positive. There's very little negatives for from the farming point of view. From my perspective, it was the best thing they could do with this ground up here. We see the place is busy with cyclists, walkers and all that. I think it's for everybody's benefit.
2: Your family, though, Willie, they have a very special connection to the landscape.
3: All goes because we've the 16th century. Um, my granny was the last of the house. There's the family tree, goes back to the 11th century. John Howie was one of the kind of principal leaders of the Covenanters that fought for their rights back then.
2: Well, it's a very complex story, isn't yes, it? It's I... a very dark chapter in Scotland's history, but I suppose, to put it as simply as possible, the Covenanters were the people who, in 1638, they signed a national covenant which renounced the Roman Catholic Church and... Confirmed their opposition to the Stuart Kings. Interfering, I suppose, is a way of describing it in the affairs of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Yes, I have. And that led to, troubled times, a lot of bloodshed.
3: Yes, a lot of persecution.
2: But this moor was a place that the Covenanters, well, escaped to, sought shelter in. They were up
3: here because of the high ground, I would say, that they could see the enemy coming.
2: They sought... To hide, but they also sought places where they could then carry out their worship. You yes. Know, to have yes. their parishes, as it were, out on these wild moors, and it's been commemorated in a wee museum that you have here.
3: Yes. There's a lot of artifacts have been collected up over the years.
2: And it's it's important, is it not, to hold that history here amidst the wind farm?
3: Yes. Oh, that is very important. We're actually standing here just now, and at the door into the farm. And we have the dates above the door of when the farm first came here. It was 1175 when it was original settlers, and 1710 when it was another part of it was done.
2: Somebody's written in pencil
3: 2014. That was <laughs> when the, the museum and all that get a revamp. That's still to be done. Etched in. Etched in, yes. That's the word. Etched in.
2: It's your family in this place. Hundreds of years of your family yes, connected uh-huh. to
3: this land, to this moor, Eaglesham. That's true. Sometimes you think that we should pick somewhere warmer. <laughs> but uh, I think as time goes on, you get a little bit older and you start to appreciate things a bit more.